Good morning, Kurt Wright. It is my privilege to be with you this morning. My name is Howard Sullivan, and I'm a retired Presbyterian Church in Canada minister. I'm here as a guest, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity while Alex is on holidays to address you this morning. So, without any further ado, let's jump into our worship this morning. Let's open in prayer. Let us pray. O God, our Father, maker and redeemer of everything in all creation, we come before you this morning in anticipation that your word will be sufficient to bring about change in a world that is broken. Your word will be sufficient to succor those in pain, to encourage those in despair, and to delight those whose confidence in your love is constant. As we consider the life and words of the shepherd become King David, the man after your own heart, help us to be renewed in our self-understanding. Accept our broken and contrite hearts as we attempt to approach with clean hands and worship you in the best way we know how. O Lord, without you we can do nothing, but with your guidance and blessing, all things are possible. Be with us, we pray, not only in this hour of praise and worship, but in every moment of our lives, that we may truly recognize our purpose in the brilliant opening of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Amen. Friends, the opening of this morning's sermon will be a bit different than usual. We will be sharing a few vignettes summarizing the life of David, the author of our Psalms this morning, to the point that scholars agree he probably wrote them during his exile from the court of Saul while being pursued as a fugitive. He begins as the youngest of eight brothers, the sons of Jesse, engaged in his life as a shepherd boy. Even in this lowly role, the last and least, he exhibited extraordinary courage and skill protecting his father's flocks from lions and bears and all manner of wild beasts. When the prophet Samuel is called by God to anoint a successor to the unfaithful and incompetent Saul, he meets seven sons of Jesse who appear outwardly to be worthy candidates, only then to be told by the Lord, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We are left wondering and perplexed at how two kings of Israel are going to survive and why God would promote such a condition. Next, one of the best-known stories in all of the Bible, though often misquoted and misused in our secular world, David defeats the Philistine champion, Goliath. The Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. 1 Samuel 17, 47. 
This situation creates an admiration and adulation for David within the Israelite camp that rivals even that of King Saul. This rivalry becomes a dangerous situation for the young warrior David. David is so successful in his out, out uh, service as a warrior in the hands of the king that people are singing his praise in the streets. Saul has slayed his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. This adulation for the young warrior upsets King Saul and leaves him forlorn and in a very, very depressed state. Here we see a picture a representation of what Saul would have been going through, bereft and left to his own devices. And here we read in 1 Samuel 16, 14, Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an, ir an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. So not only had Saul been left by God's Spirit, but God allowed an evil spirit to come and torment him. And so he is left in this madness, this situation where he just cannot cope day to day with the trials and tribulations that, be, that come upon him and the difficulties of ruling the nation of Israel. But even in that difficult state, we are to understand how gifted the young David is, for scripture provides insight into how he is able to provide comfort and solace to Saul in spite of his being possessed by an evil spirit. David comes to Saul with music, with song, with soothing words that manage to release him from that possession, even though Saul is a madman at this point in his life. And finally, after several attempts to murder the young David, there is nothing left for him except a life on the run. David escapes the wrath of Saul with the help of his daughter, Michal, and he attracts around him a band of brigands, those who are there to protect David from Saul, who hunts him down ruthlessly, and eventually they end up serving as mercenaries for the dreaded enemy of Israel, the Philistines. But by the grace of God, David and his men are protected from ever having to confront or make war against their own countrymen. And a tremendous blessing to each of them in this particular situation. And finally, in the penultimate act of faithfulness to his nation and his calling, David refuses several opportunities to press his advantage over Saul. First, preventing his men from killing him, and then, in a personally embarrassing situation, controlling his own desire to be done with the life of a fugitive, allowing the vulnerable King Saul to escape while he's relieving himself in a cave. This is summarized in 1 Samuel 26, 9. But David said to Abisha, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? 
And so David continues in his fidelity to the king that has been anointed by Samuel, and he is faithful in his service. This faithfulness, this service to God and his anointed is remembered in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul, where in Acts 13.22 he says, After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And so, friends, early in the career of the future king of Israel, we can foresee none of the brutal abuse of power or sinfulness that will peak in the affair with Bathsheba and the murder of her loyal husband, Uriah. At this point, in both vocational preparation in the wilderness and faithful worship, the composition of prayers and psalms that inspire us to this day, David seems on a trajectory to absolute success. Even though he hits the wall of human depravity later in life, he is still a figure larger than life through his writing and his relationship with God. This morning, we'll examine two psalms which reflect both David's growth in faith and the pinnacle of his prophetic understanding in both Psalms 15 and 16. It is my prayer that once we've reflected carefully on these inspired words, we will understand better David is a man after God's own heart. And so we come to the word of the Lord Psalm 15, a psalm of David. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others who despises a vile person, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here we have a beautifully composed poem, prayer, psalm, number 15. It opens with an inquisitive word. We've all considered at one point in our Christian walk. Or, if you're new to this possibility, perhaps this is the question that's brought you to worship this morning. David frames the issue with an amazing clarity given the experience of his young life. Imagine yourself in the wilderness struggling to preserve your life even though you've been promised the throne of Israel as your immediate destiny. How stark and confusing your state of mind must feel when you consider being a hunted fugitive a fugitive whose life is forfeit should the present king, King Saul, manage to catch you in a moment 
of vulnerability. Now remember, here's David's question in verse 1. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? It's a matter of who is worthy to come before God and worship. Serious worshipers have asked themselves this question throughout the centuries. How does a sinful person come before a holy God in worship? A certain school of scholars have examined this text and proposed that the beautiful poetry of David was later used as a processional reading in the temple of Jerusalem. The priests would use the parallel verses as a qualifier to those who arrived on the Sabbath, reminding them they were entering into the presence of the holy and sin-detesting God of Israel. Now, these uh, parallel uh, couplets present six attributes of the uh, faithful worshiper. We're going to examine these six attributes, and I'm going to show them to you here on the screen so that you can have a grasp of what they're all about. Now, first of all, let me establish for you um, the feeling that might have occurred. It's hard to imagine the state of mind you might find yourself in to hear these words shouted over you as you make your weekly pilgrimage to worship. I invite you to consider what it would be like here at Courtright should this be the duty of our greeters on Sunday mornings. So here we go. Here are the couplets. Starting A, B, C, D, E, F. Okay? So, the one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others who despises a vile person, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath and even when it hurts, and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. And so these are the qualifications of a person that is able to worship faithfully. Now I ask you, how would you feel if we established a routine of welcoming you here in the parking lot each Sunday with a parade of statements that describe the worthy worshiper in these terms? <laughs> Perhaps in a Monty Python-like scene, we would ask the first question, who comes to worship the Lord, the God of the universe? This, we would ask, at the entrance to the parking lot from Devere Drive. Then, in a succession, our greeters would hold up placards in stern silence with each of those Hebrew parallelisms that I just read to you. It would be daunting, would it not? 
It would be like a gauntlet that you had to face as you came to the church. I don't think it would be the recipe for church growth. But friends, lest you think this is too far-fetched for Protestants, especially open-minded Presbyterians, I'm sure there are some within the sound of this service this morning who will remember our history of providing communion tokens. These tokens were provided to congregants who had been examined for their sound Christian living by the elders of the church. Those who were satisfactory were given tokens, and these tokens were exchanged on the Sunday morning when communion was served so that they might receive the blessing of the sacrament. I thank God we have moved past such a stern, demanding interpretation of St. Paul's word to the Corinthians. However, we are left with a wounded conscience, wondering how so many could be convinced that this was the correct understanding and application of Paul's stern warning. I dare say that even David, the composer of such a grand vision of a faithful worshiper, fell far short of the goals that were set forth in this psalm. Earlier this month, Lindsay Sitzma expounded Psalm 51, exposing the obvious weaknesses of Israel's great king in a sound teaching on the wages of sin. This week, we encountered David in his youthful vulnerability. He's still establishing his dependency upon God, realizing the truths which will later be abandoned at great cost to his life and to his legacy. However, David is not merely one of those preachy prophets who merely says, do as I say, not as I do. David is very real, very transparent in his relationships. The flawed human relationships and the flawed yet fully hopeful relationship he has with God. Remember the final phrase of Psalm 15. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. David concludes, if there was one who could keep the statutes of the law, they would be unshakable. They would be the perfect worshiper, the one God could accept, the one without blemish, the one who could represent us all. This is the one, I believe, St. Paul was remembering when he penned the words. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. 
In the anointing of David to replace Saul, God has chosen a man after his own heart. Let's attempt to understand what that might mean by reading the accompanying Psalm 16, which reveals to us David's insight into his own definition of faithful worship. And in a very particular and special way is the second couplet, the second psalm that completes Psalm 15. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. A mitkam of David, Psalm 16. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have my delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of your life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Here ends the reading of the word. May God add his blessing to our understanding. Amen. Now just quickly, the word uh, El in Hebrew is translated God in the way that that uh, psalm was uh, offered to you. And the word Lord is the Hebrew Yahweh in the way that that translation was offered to you from the Hebrew. So let's dive in to Psalm 16. The first thing we noticed in contrast to Psalm 15 is that David is addressing God. The opening verse attends to identifying the God of Israel as opposed to any false God that could be worshipped in the land. From there, David boldly addresses God by the Hebrew name Yahweh, the symbolic, unspeakable name, I am who I am, which was given to Moses. Nowhere in the psalm do we hear David's righteousness or worthiness to address the Lord. Rather, he is demurring in tone. Without the Lord, he has nothing, and he is pleased to live among the saints of his time. His eye is on the Lord, who counsels him day and night. Then, in this remarkable cross-reference to Psalm 15's final verse, David claims, I will not be shaken. 
Does this mean David has staked a claim to being a righteous and faithful worshiper? Certainly, I agree that is possibly his intention, but he has placed a huge, significant caveat on his steadfastness. Yahweh, the God of Israel, will be at his right hand. He cannot accomplish this on his own. So we have here this beautiful witness that David is dependent on God. And it is a witness that is beautifully paralleled in the New Testament in Matthew 16, 15 to 17, showing the relationship between Peter and Jesus. Let's hear that word. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. To be a martyria, that is, a witness for Jesus, one must have a sense that they haven't reasoned to the truth, they haven't discovered some secret knowledge, which is gnosis in Greek, but they have been touched by God's Spirit in an undeniable way. Through this connection with God, a truth is revealed that nothing in all creation can prevail against. That is what I believe occurred to King David, in my humble opinion. So all-consuming was that moment of spiritual connection with Yahweh that he became momentarily for Israel a prophet, a priest, a king, revealing for all people of faithful worship what we hear in Psalm 1610. A final Hebrew parallelism to draw your attention to the most incredible insight offered in these two psalms that we have shared together this morning. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one, capitalized, see decay. In the historic times, 3,000 plus years ago when David lived, 1,000 plus years ago before Jesus Christ made these words alive with truth, David, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, put the possibility of resurrection faith before the people with a certainty that one day God would fulfill his word. Surely, we have a man after God's own heart. Not one who boasts of his power and authority, but one who listens, who gives credit to the Almighty, one who waits upon the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God for such truth-filled witness.